Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hawaii Kai Church, and thank you for joining us in worship, especially if you are new here or maybe you're visiting. Uh, we do want to welcome you, and if there are any questions that you may have, uh, any comments, concerns about what you see, what you hear, uh, maybe you're just wondering something about the church or about Jesus, uh, maybe you have some questions about Christianity, please come and find me or any one of the other elders after service is over. Uh, we are more than happy to speak with you, and, and that really goes for all of us here, not just if you are new or visiting. If there's anything that you're going through or any, anything that you want to talk out, you, f- you can feel free to always come up and talk to us. And at this time, I do invite you to take out your Bible or Bible underneath the chair in front of you and turn to the book of Luke. We are in Luke chapter 7 and verse 24 as we continue our study through the book of Luke. Luke chapter 7 verses 24 through 35 is our passage today. And that passage can be found on page 864 if you are using a church Bible, page 864. Luke chapter 7 and verse 24. And uh, before we look at our text together, would you please uh, join me in prayer? Uh, Father, we thank you for this time of worship And we ask, God, that as we look to your word, uh, that you would give us ears to hear it, that you would give us a heart, God, a heart of faith to believe it, and that you'd give us a a wisdom uh, to trust in you uh, more than we trust in anything else. We ask that by your Holy Spirit, you'd show to us uh, the surpassing worth and glory of Jesus Christ, uh, that he might be everything to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The last image that we were left with in our last passage is that of John the Baptist, the once fiery and unashamed, bold and fearless preacher in the wilderness, the very forerunner of the Messiah, the preparer of the people for Jesus. The last image we have of this spiritual giant is one of him sitting in a jail cell filled with doubt and sending messengers to Jesus asking him, if he is really the one, or should we be looking for somebody else? This isn't a high point for John the Baptist. His life currently is one of lonely imprisonment and uncertainty, setbacks and disappointment and weakness, these being the expressions of a very battered faith which Jesus sought to strengthen by pointing John to the truth and to the power of God and to his word. Jesus did this because he loves John, and Jesus wants to make him more secure in his faith. Pastor Dave did an excellent job in covering this. But because this doubt is expressed in front of a crowd of people, Jesus now wants to address that crowd of watching people. Because it is often the case that when any of us experience any kind of weakness, it is often the case that others will want to question the authenticity of our belief and belittle the genuineness of our faith. The crowds often want to evaluate and even criticize others spiritually with just a very few set of snapshots. And it's so easy for people to mask our own spiritual deficiencies by harping on someone else's. And it is in our text this morning that we find Jesus defending John the Baptist 
And then he addresses the crowds and their own potential unbelief. Jesus is primarily concerned for the faith of the people who are following him, but not before he defends John. And we read in Luke uh, chapter 7, verse 24 this. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing. Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Jesus here magnifies John the Baptist, testifying to his unique faith and his important placement in redemptive history. And while the low point of John the Baptist's life appears to be a very low one, Jesus still defends his own, that even if no one else will honor John when they see him doubt and witness him at his very worst, Jesus still does honor him. You know, we as people, we can be so easily forgetful and these crowds have such a short memory of even the most powerful ministries. And so Jesus asked them essentially the same question three times. What then did you go out into the wilderness to see? Why were you so drawn to John the Baptist in the first place? What was it about him? Was he a reed shaken by the wind, just fluttering in every which way? And John the Baptist was a different kind of man altogether with a strong, immovable set of convictions. And there are a lot of conviction-less preachers now, days without a backbone at all. If the culture wants this, they preach this. If the crowd changes its mind, and it always does, and wants that instead, they preach that instead. Whatever is in style, whatever is trendy, this is what we have to do. And these types of proclaimers want to be popular more than they want to stand for the truth. They want to be approved of and applauded by the people more than they want to be approved of by God. And the image is that of a thin plant blowing in every kind of direction, a fickle reed having no kind of girth to stand up to anything. And there are many ministers and ministries who come up with this gimmick to please the audience. And when that stops working, a different one instead, fluttering around in all of these unpredictable gusts. And Jesus is reminding the crowd who's being tempted to think less of John the Baptist to remember why it is that you were first drawn to him in the first place. John the Baptist was not scared to tell you the truth, whether you liked it or not. He was a man of strong conviction and boldness and girth. And he called the streams of people who gathered around to hear the words that would come out of his mouth. He called them to a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Luke chapter 3. Repentance meaning that you need to change your life. Because you've been living the wrong way. You've been living towards the wrong end. And for the glory of the wrong person. Repentance meaning that you have to want to turn away from your sin. And own that as your own. You can't, you have to stop blaming other people for it. The problem is not outside of me, but the problem is inside of me. It is right here within my heart. But I confess all of this with the hope that God will forgive me, not because I deserve it, 
but because God is a forgiving God. This was the meat of John's message, and his baptism symbolized a washing, not the washing of some dirt on the outside, but a washing of me and my heart because I need somebody else to cleanse me deeply. I can't do it on my own. Someone needs to handle my sinfulness because I can't handle it on my own. This is not always the most popular message to deliver or the most trendy and in vogue, but John the Baptist was utterly consistent in his preaching, undaunted by the opinions of this person or that person. He had been steadfast and courageous, which is proven by his very jail sentence. Because John the Baptist was unafraid to even call out kings for their iniquities. And he readily called even those in power that you need to return to God. Even when those very kings could throw him into the darkest of cells and have him beheaded if the king so wanted to. Which this particular king would do in the very near future. And so Jesus is defending John the Baptist here by asking the question, did you go out to see a skinny reed shaken by the wind? No, you did not. And so do not doubt the unique and powerful faith of John the Baptist. And then Jesus reminds them even more, not only of his preaching conviction, but also of his very distinct lifestyle, that John was not dressed in soft and fine clothing and living in luxury and keeping company with the most influential kinds of people sitting in the king's courts. There are again... Preachers out there who wear all the brand names and take their selfies with all the celebrities and make sure that everyone else gets to witness that on their social media accounts. And they look exactly like the rest of the vain and unbelieving world and advertise that this very world is their self-centered oyster. John the Baptist, by way of contrast, wore camel's hair. He lived in the boonies, far away from palaces and luxuries, and he ate locusts and wild honey because materialism did not have a pinky's finger's grip upon his heart. And so while John did have this thick backbone and concrete conviction that no wind could ever really shake, he also had this uncommon disregard for worldly comforts and ease. It was as if self-indulgence disgusted him. And the things that so easily trap the most vain and self-centered held no temptation over him. John had this unparalleled self-denial that kept his body and his appetites and his longings and his life in check that I live so much for the glory of another, the glory of God, that nothing else even appeals to me at all. And I don't know if you've ever been around a person who loves the Lord so much and live so much for eternity that all the things that might wow you and wow me just do not seem to wow them at all. The things that most people covet, the fancy houses and multiples of them, looking at their photographs of the most decadent dishes that they put into their mouths. They're wanting their kids to score the most points or get into the best schools that these very things do not lead them to daydream of one day holding them in the palms of their own hands. There are a few who are like this, and their lives, even before they open their mouths, their life preaches that all of this is relatively inconsequential, that all of this is really not all that impressive. 
that I can have this unparalleled self-denial because there is something so much bigger that I am living for. And I can't keep looking into the mirror and daydreaming about my own little kingdom when I'm looking at Jesus Christ and longing for his. Now, now, side note, the lazy Christian who just doesn't want to work that hard or study or train or try hard because, you know what, heaven's coming and what's the point? I'm just going to do nothing and be lazy. And even if I wanted to succeed, I could in any way. I have no real-world skills. That's, that's not John the Baptist. John had this ability to lead thousands. Every time he opened his mouth, the crowd started to grow. He could have had a career in leadership and communication, but he preferred the wilderness to luxury because of his self-denial, because of his he greater than I mentality. And so this is the John the Baptist that Jesus is showing to the crowds, reminding them that this is his life and this is his faith. This is who you all went out to see. You can't preach like this and live like this unless your faith is real and it is strong. His life had been utterly consistent with his message that the kingdom of God is near and that no other kind of kingdom should impress us at all. But in addition to John's life lived out before the eyes of the crowds, Jesus also points them to a prophecy which had been made in Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1. And there God had promised hundreds of years prior that he was going to send a messenger. And this messenger was going to prepare the people for God's anointed one, the promised one, the Messiah, the eternal king. And John the Baptist is the supreme prophet in this sense because every other prophet before him and every other messenger in the Old Testament, they could only speak of Jesus from afar. They were only looking at him from this great distance of time. But it was John the Baptist being this messenger and the greatest of all the prophets in his proximity to Jesus. For when he spoke about Jesus, Jesus was right there with him. And he was able to usher in the Christ, beholding him with his very own two eyes. John is this hinge in redemptive history, this baton pastor, so to speak, from the old age into the new. This was his privilege and no prophet and no human had this amount of privilege in being chosen to usher in the kingdom of Jesus Christ as his very own herald. And so there is this unique faith and life and this special position of privilege in redemptive history. And Jesus honors John the Baptist before the crowd who is tempted to dishonor him because of a single snapshot of a deep doubt and great disappointment. Now, before we move on, I want you to notice that Jesus says all of these things. He sings John's praises after John's messengers had already left, which means that John himself will likely not hear these sweet things from the Son of God's lips. He didn't get a chance to listen to Jesus' affirmation and vindication of his own life. And John's ministry, which began with revival and thousands upon thousands fleeing the city to run into the wilderness, to hear him speak, to be baptized with his baptism as the best known and most popular preacher of his day. It is the same life which is now ending in a dungeon, dealing with doubt and disappointment, and his head is about to be cut clean from his body. But Jesus is praising him even though he doesn't know it yet. Jesus is a friend to him who never fails and never will forsake him, although he can't feel it yet. Jesus is loyal to him 
and John will be finally vindicated, and he will then understand more and more just how the Son of God really views him. And I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, who grasp so tightly to the gospel, maybe in families that do not believe it, or in marriages where you're the only one that does, and in schools where being a Christian automatically drops you five levels in the social standing ladder, and in your jobs and careers where claiming Jesus doesn't help you to get ahead at all, but might make you even take a few steps backward, that though you do not see it now, and though you may not hear it now, our Lord is watching, and he takes notice of your faith, and he even praises it, even when he is the one who gave that faith to you. Jesus is loyal to you. And when we open our eyes in glory on resurrection day, when the opinions of the world mean absolutely nothing at all, and the opinion of our beloved absolutely everything, it will have all been worth it. And therefore it is that before that moment, we must trust in him with all of our hearts, even if we find ourselves in a deep and seemingly hopeless dungeon. Jesus defends, and he will honor his own. And even if all the crowds of all the world turn on you in your darkest hour and your lowest point, Jesus will not. And so cling to him with all of your might. We continue with verse 28 again. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. There are those who received John's message, and there are those who did not. They rejected it. There are those who recognized that, you know what, I am a sinful people. I've been living in the wrong direction. I haven't been living for the glory of God. And there are those others who refuse to see themselves in any kind of negative light at all or in any kind of real and desperate need or in a position where they have to be forgiven by God at all. After defending the life of John the Baptist and describing his privileged position in ushering in the Messiah, Jesus is now turning his attention to the crowds and to their own faith and to their own position of privilege. And Jesus here makes a very startling proclamation that the one who is least, the one who is lowest, the one who is a nobody in the kingdom of God, that that one is actually greater than John the Baptist, that that one has even more privilege than the most supreme prophet of the old age. Now, what is Jesus saying? Listen to Alexander McLaren on these verses. He says, it's not a question of character, it is a question of position. True greatness is regulated by closeness to Jesus Christ and by apprehension and appropriation of his work to myself. The dwarf on the shoulders of the giant sees further than the giant. And the least in the kingdom be nearer to Jesus Christ than the men of old could ever be because possessing the fuller revelation of God in him is greater than the greatest without. The humblest Christian grasps a fuller Christ and therein possesses a fuller spiritual life than did the ancient heroes of the faith. 
Now let me give to you an example that might make this point more clear. When John the Baptist had been dealing with doubt in the passage previous to ours, Jesus tells John's messengers in verse 22, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. What Jesus is doing is pointing John to the power and kindness of God, the character of God, in, his, in reversing sin's effects upon this broken world. That even the blind, lame, poor, deaf, lepers, even the dead, the lowest of lows, their situations can be reversed. That the most broken ones can be lifted up as an indicator and a pointer and a proof of the perfect kingdom which is to come. That is how Jesus helps John in his own doubt. But when Doubting Thomas is filled with doubt, this is John chapter 20, verse 25. Doubting Thomas being one of the 12 disciples who got to live years longer than John and see way more things than John the Baptist ever did. Jesus comes to Thomas when he is dealing with his doubt and Jesus says to him, put your finger here. See my hands, feel them. Put your hand here and place it in my side. What Jesus does for Thomas is to have him feel the very wounds and the nail-pierced hands and the spear thrust aside of his own resurrected body. Jesus doesn't point Thomas to powerful miracles of healing. Jesus points to Thomas of his very own suffering to prove his heart and compassion for the low, to prove his power over sin and death. Because what every believer has, this side of John the Baptist, is a fuller picture of how it is that Jesus has come to usher in his kingdom. John the Baptist had no idea that the forgiveness of sin that he had been preaching, John had no idea that God's forgiveness of us is going to come at the cost of his own beloved son. That God would welcome in the repentant because Jesus is the one who will suffer and bleed and die upon the criminal's cross. The best and even the greatest prophets didn't quite put it together that the love of God is such that God would be so sacrificial for the ones who had offended him most. That God, Romans 5, 8, that God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, that's when Christ died for us. John didn't understand this, although he loved and lived for Jesus and his privilege was so great in his proximity to Christ, but the very least of us, brothers and sisters, have a far greater privilege in seeing the cross and witnessing Jesus bearing our shame and carrying our iniquity and enduring the wrath of God, which is due to us, that he bears that wrath upon himself instead of us. John did, did not get to see and understand the defeat of death and the breaking of the power of sin in Jesus' own resurrection, in our position, even the weakest of us here. Even if we are dwarfs in the faith, we still see Jesus Christ better and more fully than the giant upon whose shoulders we rest. Our privilege is so, so much greater than John's. And if John the Baptist had lived the life that he lived, and preached the message that he preached and had this unusual self-denial because he so much more lived for another's kingdom rather than his own. If John the Baptist could live like this on less privilege than what we have, how much more, brothers and sisters, should we give ourselves to the Lord like he has given himself to us? 
There is nothing that God has not already given to us that we need. And so the least in the kingdom of God is thus greater than John in this very sense of privilege. Now you'll notice in these same verses that there are two different groups of people with two entirely different responses to John's ministry and also to Jesus Christ himself. We have the more common people the, in verse 29, which includes the sinful tax collectors, that when they hear Jesus' very words, they have joy in their hearts. And what makes a tax collector so sinful is that their career uh, required them to sell out their nation and to betray their own people so that they could line their own pockets by ripping off their very own people. They became rich by making their nation poor. It would be as if a bunch of people from Ukraine for money sold out the people of Ukraine to further Russia's interests and give them a tactical advantage all so that they individually might live a more luxurious life. It's the same genre of treason as the tax collector. But what makes even the worst of the worst kinds of people and the lowest of low rejoice is because this tax collector has no fond ideas about himself. He knows and fully understands that I don't deserve a thing from God. There's no way that I could ever earn my way into God's kingdom. I'm a tax collector. I'm a traitor. God is just, and I'm not. He is holy, and I am utterly sinful. And even if I quit my job and paid everyone back, that would still not be enough. That doesn't undo what I've done. It wouldn't be enough to assume or expect that I should be accepted by him. But I own my sin. I confess my sin. And I hate it. I don't want this life anymore. Not to earn my way to God. I just don't like it. And in repentance, I come before God, and I want to live for him instead of living for myself. This repentance doesn't earn anything, but it puts us into a position where we can receive freely forgiveness from God. And there's a certain joy that comes from understanding that God is forgiving, not because of anything I earned or anything found in me, but because he is a kind and loving and gracious and forgiving and just God. And there's a certain joy that comes from knowing, you know what, God loves me in spite of myself. It's not contingent upon anything that I can do. And if he loves me when I am at my worst, he loves me more than anyone else could ever love me. You know, we see in these verses the joy of the people who understand the gospel message, that they are great, not because of any innate greatness in them, but wholly by the grace of God, they are given a greatness of experience. But the kind of person who rejects this message and who refuses to repent and doesn't see anything that wrong with the way that they are living, they are living and, and who they are living unto, or whose glory and whose kingdom that they are not living unto. There's no such joy. There is just this rejection. And the irony here is that the most religious and the most spiritual, the Pharisees and the lawyers, the one with the high social standings, the moral and upstanding citizens of Israel, the exact opposite end of the spectrum as this tax collector, they hear John the Baptist calling them to repent. They listen to him preach the forgiveness of sins. And they say, you know what? No, thank you because there's nothing for me to repent of. There's nothing that wrong with the way that I'm living. 
And if God were to send a son to the earth today, I think that son of God would applaud me. Good job. You're trying your best. He wouldn't have to die for me because we're pretty fine exactly the way that we are. We don't need to be washed. I mean, maybe just a little bit of that surface dirt. But I don't need to be cleansed because I'm not really all that filthy because there's not much wrong with us at all. And the most chilling phrase, perhaps, in our entire passage is found in verse 30. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves. There's something about this hardness of heart that can stop the purpose of God. What is the purpose of God? God says in Ezekiel 33, 11, Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. God's purpose for us is that we might have life and life eternal. 2 Peter 3, 9 shows us God's heart. It tells us that God is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The entire reason that God gives to us a Bible, the entire purpose of sending John the Baptist, the entire ends that he sends Jesus Christ after him is so that the world of humanity, which we have turned our backs upon God, the purpose is that we might turn around and see the love of God for us in Jesus Christ. He sent the Messiah to suffer on our behalf so that we might be washed and forgiven and so that we might be made new, that we might enjoy a union with him which we were created and designed to enjoy. But the tragedy of tragedies is that we can reject this purpose by our refusal to see ourselves for who we really are and our refusal to see the Lord for who he really is. And the simple way that we reject this purpose and refuse this love is by merely denying a true consciousness of our own sinfulness and rejecting any idea that I even have to be cleansed or that I even have to be changed. Me changed, that's unhealthy. And thus we refuse the salvation that God has purchased with the blood of Jesus Christ. If there's anything that you will take away from this message this morning, is that God is more than willing, no matter who you are, and no matter what you've done in the past, God is more than willing to bring you back to himself if you would just but own your sin, confess it, and turn away from it and come to him for his cleansing and for his forgiveness and come to him for new life so that you might enjoy his love, which is only possible because of Jesus Christ. You know, if you're new here, maybe you're visiting, this is all sounding strange to you. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is not ultimately about human achievement. The moral of this story is not live like John and try your best, and then if you get high enough grades, you get to go into heaven. No, the gospel is about the worst of people, the least of people, in the kingdom of God because of someone else's achievement, because someone else lived a life that you couldn't live, and that someone else decides to die the death that we each deserve. We only are great in the kingdom of heaven because of Jesus Christ and because of him alone. And so we have here... The ones who are most privileged and the ones who rejoice most are the very ones who know that they are sinners and the ones who reject God's gracious purpose of salvation in their own lives are the ones who think that they have their acts together. We continue and we will close with these final five verses. Verse 31, to what then shall I compare the people of this generation? 
and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children." You know, there are some little children who are just very difficult to please. The rest of the kids want to play this. They say, I don't want to play that. And when the kids say, okay, how about this instead? They say, no, I don't want to play that either. It's like they don't want anything but to say no. And that's how little children can so often be. At our house, uh, they take turns being that little kid. And in Israel, the same. Some kids want to play house. Let's pretend there's a wedding. Let's play make-believe. Let's play flutes and have a celebration. Nope. Okay, fine. We'll do the opposite then. Let's sing a dirge and pretend to have a funeral. We can all act like we're crying. No. And there are many in the crowd of Jesus' followers who are exactly the same. That the true spiritual condition of so many of them are those who refuse God's purpose and heart of love for them. If God sends them a John the Baptist, who is direct and to the point, denying even the most ordinary pleasure because of his laser focus, the people think, that guy's nuts. He's way too serious. He's way too much of a separatist. He's so holier than thou. John is too strict. He's too weird. He's got a demon. And if God sends to them a Jesus who isn't in the boonies, but actually rubs shoulders with the tax collectors, he touches the untouchable lepers. He eats and he drinks. He's not a separatist at all. The same people think this Jesus, he's just way too sinful. Because the problem, church family, is not the message, nor is a problem the messengers that God has sent to these people. The problem is the people themselves, that they will find any excuse not to believe what God is trying to tell them. And the irony of ironies is that the most spiritual and the ones with the longest religious resumes are the ones who reject Jesus and John. And Jesus likens them to the most spoiled little children who are impossible to please. We must make sure that each of us in this room, that we do not have this kind of heart. And there are some within the church that no matter who it is that tells you, the problem is always them and not you. You find fault in anyone and everyone except yourself. Well, this person's too harsh. Well, this one's too soft. This guy, when he talks, is just way over my head. It's too complicated. But that guy, he's just too dumb. Everyone else is wrong, and you're the only one who is right. If you find yourself thinking like this all the time, the problem might not be everyone else. The problem might be you. It's the exact reverse of repentance, where everyone else needs to repent of something, but not me. It's the reverse of how we get to God. And Jesus indicts this kind of attitude as simply a childish form of pride exhibited by those who are utterly unwilling to see ourselves accurately. And again, brothers and sisters, we must not be like that. And there are many like this in the world that no matter how many people God sends to you, no matter how loudly he is calling out for you, and how many times he has beckoned you to look upward to him and put you into this situation and that situation and this situation to come to an end of yourself, you still refuse. I plead with you, don't refuse. 
Humble yourself and listen to the people God has sent to you. Humble yourself and listen to the message God has for you. Be wise. And while it may seem at this point in our text that the Pharisees and the lawyers and those who reject Jesus and John, it looks like they have the upper hand in this world. I mean, John's in prison, about to get his head cut off. Jesus is about to go to the cross. And the only people who believe in those two guys are guys like tax collectors and fishermen, not the movers and shakers of the world. It seems like those who side with them are the ones who are the fools, and it seems like those who reject them are the wise ones. But this will not be the case in the end, no matter what things look like now. 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. And the wisdom of God, which may seem foolish for a little while, will be justified when all her children are ultimately vindicated that even those who like John who is rejected by the world and abandoned by the crowds, this one and all who believe like him will finally be vindicated and the wisdom of God will be eternally displayed. That the insignificant ones, we will be great in the kingdom of God. And those important ones of the world, they may not even enter it. And the question for the crowds and the question for us is do we really believe it? Do we really believe in the wisdom of God? Do we really believe that we who are weak will be great in the kingdom of God? Do we really believe that faith, although it looks foolish to the watching world, will be triumphed and praised by the Son of God in the end? That's the question that he leaves us with. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for your word, God, and we thank you for your grace and your mercy that even people like tax collectors can somehow be great in your kingdom. That even people like we who, who are not all that can even enter your kingdom. We thank you for your love for the unlovable, your grace to the sinner, your kindness and patience, your long-suffering for even those of us who've run away from you for years. I pray, God, that you would convict us more of just how much you love us in Jesus Christ. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us uh, such a desire for your kingdom more than our own, such an appetite for your glory more than our own, that, that, that self-denial might be a joy, that living for, for you would just be much more satisfying than living merely for ourselves. Would you give us true wisdom, God? and give us joy and convict our hearts of the greatest love the world has ever seen. Help us to enjoy you in Jesus Christ with all our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.